Ding, ding, ding! All aboard the Movie Men Express, and this bad boy ain't stopping nowhere. I'm Callum O'Toole, your conductor for the evening, and over there with his polka dot bindle and his loose-fitting slacks is a man who's no stranger to the inside of a boxcar, Johnny Smith. Welcome, Johnny. Thank you for having me. How you doing? You good? I'm good. I've been on a couple of trains in the last week, so I'm, I'm in the mindset. I've done some method acting, as it were. Spinning your hobo yarns? Yeah, you know. On one of those little things, you know, like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. All, oh, yeah, yeah. Pump it up and down, going down the track. Yeah. Just on one of those between London and Manchester. <laughs> Did you have a large <laughs> black man on the other end of it singing, like, songs or anything? No, I didn't, didn't find any of those. Just me taking... Six days to get anywhere. Pump that, up and down. They'll do that to you. So last week we, I asked you a question about, it's a political theme, we're talking about Amber Heard. Um, and, you know, I'm going to keep with politics this week for our opening question, actually, Johnny. So um, the former Arkansas governor and purveyor of the dark arts slash Republican politician, Mike Huckabee, embarrassed himself recently by comparing fellow cock weasel and presidential candidate Donald Trump to Captain Quint from Jaws and Hillary Clinton to the shark. He was then reminded that the shark eventually ends up eating Captain Quint. <laughs> A bizarre analogy to say the least, but what other real-life politicians remind you of characters from films? I mean, sticking on, you know, Donald Trump's an easy target, as, as the world is proving over yeah. and over again. And, you know, you could obviously go down the Gordon Gecko sort of route, mm -hmm. you know, obvious, you know, greed is good. But I thought probably greed the best is good, one would sexual be... sexual assault is good, uh, racism is good. Building, he takes, building walls is good. He takes Gordon Gecko to the extreme, really. Um, so, you know, too obvious. So I thought, actually, the evil entity that is the blob... From the 1950s that, that Steve McQueen had to run away from in his that very what, early days. Is that what Donald Trump's got on his head? <laughs> That's, the, That's thing. the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I went with the blob. Just sort of this big, horrible thing that's slowly taking over America and yeah. covering everything in gunk and shit. And darkness. Good, yeah, yeah, Donald Trump. Now I went down the Tony Blair route and I thought, you know what? He's got a lot of the David Brent about him. From Life on the Road. So, you know, he used to be the big boss, but now he's basically just a glorified rep for the UK. Uh, he never admits he's wrong. He definitely thinks he's down with the kids, and I reckon he pretty fancies himself on the guitar. Uh, but most importantly, he was recently talking about getting the old band back together, wasn't he? Getting back into politics. One last tour. Making a comeback. So, I mean, but, another, another one I had a sort of feeling on in British politics was Theresa May... Always mm. reminds me of Nurse Ratchet from Just this sort of, you know, a dead stare behind that yeah. sort of 80s permanent shoulder pad. Well, she lobotomizes the UK. I mean, I did, have a, I did have just a pure visual one that didn't have any real, you know, relevance or anything. But if you can cast your mind back to Men in Black. Well, the scene when uh, Tommy Lee Jones shoots the guy in the head and then his head grows back. If you pause that, maybe two thirds of the way through, <laughs> that's pretty much Nigel Farage's head. You know, that's I see like what you mean there. Underdeveloped, weird, snaky. It's a very niche visual reference <laughs> yeah. point. Everyone has to go now and watch Men in Black just yeah. for that. He's Get just pause on. He's also got a bit of Nagini from Harry Potter about him as well. I mean, just Toad of Toad Hall. Any reptilian, you know. Toad of Toad Hall, another yeah. reptile. He's quite an amphibious man. Rachel. I need you to stay away. So what did you do during those hours that night? I don't remember. There's some time missing. What happened that night in the tunnel? Tell me the truth. 
So tonight we're going to be reviewing Girl on the Train, which is, sorry, The Girl on the Train, which uh, came out about a week ago. So we're, you know, slightly behind the curve, but, you know, we're not made of money. We can't go and watch film every week, can we, Johnny? We, you know, we're, we're tying into the sort of uh, link with National Rail. Yeah. We haven't quite got there on time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll be two of us along in a minute. The second podcast will come out tomorrow. <laughs> So the premise of the film is that basically Emily Blunt plays uh, an unemployed alcoholic who's previously had some trauma in her life that's led her to be an unemployed alcoholic. And then she lives in Upper New York and she rides the same train every day and becomes obsessed with observing the goings-on in the daily lives of the residents of a particular street that she passes. And things take an unnerving twist, though, when one of the residents, this seductive Megan, played by Hayley Bennett, goes missing. And Blunt's character, Rachel, is unable to give any account for her whereabouts on that day, so immediately falls under suspicion. So, Johnny, this film, well, the book, sorry, that this film is based on, uh, is, is you know, a very popular book, obviously, hence why they rushed the film out to follow it up. But they moved the setting from the UK to the US. Why do you think they did that? And did it work doing so? I mean, obviously, having not read the book, yeah, that's it's difficult problem. to know what the setting of England brought to it. But I would think that it was probably a lot less glamorous. Because mm-hmm. this film is, you know, she's going past these lovely houses and lovely people live in them and everything's quite nice. And, you know, very American and perfect. Whereas in England, I can't imagine, you know, getting the commuter train. You probably see a tramp piss, pissing in a bin. So. Yeah, the trains don't tend to run through the, the nice parts of town in the UK, do they? No. Not so much. It's either no, middle of nowhere or shitholes. Yeah. So, you know, I would think there's probably a grittier edge in the yeah. English, but obviously they probably moved it for... And also the people on the trains, just angry commuters and... People of that nature. People playing shit music on their phone. Kids stealing rides... Is that Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> why is he sitting on the floor? Uh, so, yeah, those, those are some of the reasons why they probably... Didn't I mean, obviously, you know, in America, it's going to be more appealing. Well, probably. I did... I heard that in the book, the train passes, like, directly through terraced housing. <laughs> through terraced housing. <laughs> Bloody Tory government building <laughs> affordable homes. Um, but passes by these terraced houses, and that's why she can eat more easily seen, where it's not so... I mean, people don't really get the train that much in America either. No. As opposed to here, where everyone is stuck on a train line somewhere Mm. several times a day. I mean, and they kept several English actors and actresses in it, so... Yes. Might as well have just kept it in England. Yeah, pretty much. And, well, okay, so the the most clear one being Emily Blunt. Um, I've never seen an English actress struggle so much with an English accent before. She was in and out of that. Very bizarre. Couldn't work out the whole film if she was supposed to be American or English. Well, she, she's supposed to be English. I cut her some slack and thought, you know what, she's probably picked up a bit of an American accent and it's realistic for her, for having lived in America and the character lives in America, to do, to do the same and keep that accent. So I went to cut her a little bit of slack from there. I just found it a little bit bizarre. But how much of the film do you think hinges on her performance, really? I think the the film is sort of on two tracks of where one of its Pun. Ah, yeah. Cameron. Excellent. Um so the sort of half of it is about this disappearance and what's going on in this neighbourhood with this girl, Megan. Then the other half is sort of about Rachel coming to terms with her you Amazing. know, tragic life and <laughs> it's sort of these two threads running along on parallel tracks, but they don't really blend together very well. No. So I think Evan Lutz does quite a good job of being drunk and disorderly but yeah that's the bigger problem I think I think I, do you know what I'm, I'm for once I might have to disagree with you here Johnny I thought it was a really uneven performance from her I thought 
in some parts she was very good and a, but a lot of it I think it was just it didn't seem like she was trying think, that hard I think that's the thing is that she basically didn't have a lot to work with no they, I think the problem with the whole film is not when she's acting opposite Luke Evans who seemed to be extremely one paced and one faced like literally just he's a dreadful slightly infuriated all the time <laughs> yeah yeah. do you know like when the aerial on the TV goes or you burnt your toast just in that constant state of everything being slightly irritated yeah but I, I think it is the, the problem with the film is that a lot of these characters are very bland and mm. underwritten and do you really care about any of them do you really care about Rachel and her alcohol problems and family issues not really no it doesn't really I'd agree with that and do you know what like you would take the Megan character I'm so bored of these faux sultry seductress with their indulgent dialogue and like you know where she just sort of goes off and she's like like giving the, the wispy voice and like using sexual words <laughs> also I'm pretty sure everyone that the film gave the impression that every couple on that street just had sex every time they saw each other as well well, as the commuter train went past. <laughs> yeah. No one's looking, though. Everyone's... Just exhibitionists everywhere. It's all this very sexed up, idyllic sort of vision of living in America, which isn't done with any satire no. or irony. It's just sort of like, isn't it wonderful? But it's not that wonderful because people go missing. A big part of the problem with the film is they started it with two quite dull monologues, from one from Rachel and one from Megan, like just... So that they didn't have to show any of the backstory, really. They didn't have to build the story. They just had two of them just explaining for about the first ten minutes everything that had previously happened in the the years leading up to this event. Well, I think that, you know, immediately, as soon as this monologue happens and sets everything out, you're a bit like, oh, right, so she knows these people and things. Yeah. And it sort of takes the mystery and excitement out of it, I think. Yeah. So you think, you know, that it doesn't really successfully managed to keep us hooked on the fact it's a murder mystery. I don't think we've even mentioned so much as That's the thing. The plot. I think the film sort of forgets it's a murder mystery. Yeah. And the fact there's probably seven characters. Yeah. And so the murder mystery element is basically it's really a guessing game between these six characters. But yeah. not in you know good murder mystery where it could be anyone and there's all proper motives. It's kind of fairly obvious early on where where it's going. Yeah. What is it with police techniques these days? I mean, do you remember the episode of The Simpsons where Chief Wiggum is just trying to get people to admit to crimes by just shouting at them, Did you do it? Because that was pretty much what was happening in this film. The dialogue is abysmal. It's so bad. The, the closing dialogue was just insanely poor. <laughs> and there's loads, there's loads of false profound, prof, profundity, is that a word? Profoundness is what I wanted to say. That's profundity. Profundity sounds better. Profanity. <laughs> Riddled with profanity. Like, just loads of false stuff that's trying to make itself sound profound, but just isn't. So, let's give it a rating then out of 10, Johnny Gone. Uh, I'm going to say 2. I 2? Crap. That's, that is extreme. It's just one of those, I don't think, you know, you can watch, it's watchable, but it frustrates me that it was so poorly mm. done. I think that you could have do a lot with it, and it could be mm. very exciting and, you know, interesting and, and get to the depth of these characters, but it was just sort of going through the motions, really. I don't like the whole argument in general that, oh, if a film isn't as good as the book that it's based on, then you've got to give it a lot, like this, then it's a crap film. But I think a good comparison to make is with Gone Girl, because the book of Gone Girl, I read that and thought, this is going to be really hard to make into a film. And obviously the film wasn't as good as the book, but I was impressed with the film because I think they did a good job of actually 
summarising the book and making it into the film that it became. In this, it's, it's just a bad film. It's just a straight-up bad film. And they've obviously not done a good job of taking an, e an easier book on face value to make into a film. And so I just think, I think it's poor. I was going to give it a four, but I think you've convinced me, you've talked me into a three here, Johnny, so... I was struggling with a three, but I thought, you know, it's just bad filmmaking. And everything's yeah. in close-ups. Yeah. Which, you know, which is fine, because, you know, you get this full-on of her drunk all the time. But if it's a murder mystery, so you need the wider yeah. scale to, you know, take in the details and get the context. Mm. So it was just a mess, really. Did you murder Megan Hipwell? No. I'm not the girl I used to be. Why are you here? Because I'm afraid of myself. Right, we've come to challenge time. So, Johnny, this time it's your go to give me something to answer. So, what you got for me, man? <clears throat> well, this way I've gone. I've you know I've, I've had to think about the trains. Ooh. So I'm, I've you know trains on the mind, trains on the film. So I've gone with cool. One of those guys, I planes, trains, and automobiles. Okay, yeah. So basically, the name of the game. I've gone for ten questions because it, it's going to be fairly swift. So basically, I'm going to name the film, and you've just got to say what the key form of transport in the film is. Oh, okay. I mean, obviously, sometimes people drive cars. Yeah. But if it's you know mostly sell on a train. Yeah. You'll you'll get it. You know, go on a train, it's a bad train. Yeah. Even though people do appear in cars at times. Yes. So number one, non stop. I haven't seen it. Motorbike. It's a plane. Uh, Liam Neeson on a plane in a terrible thriller. Oh I know that I actually remember the one you mean, yeah. I haven't seen it. Until I saw a picture of it, I went, oh, I remember seeing the trailer ages ago. So number two, unstoppable. Train. Train, you're right. Mm -hmm. Chris Pine, Denzel Washington, mm -hmm. go mental on train. Yeah. Death proof. Oh, car? Car yeah. it is. Uh, Quintus Tarantino, yeah. Kurt Russell, crazy stuntman. Bullet. Car? Car, of course. The, uh, on the streets of San Francisco. The great car chase. Yeah. Number five, the general. Train. It is a train. Yeah, because I, I saw this Buster Keaton, isn't it? it I is saw Buster that in my own research for the podcast, uh, so I cheated a little bit a now. Real old uh, Number six, speed two. Isn't it a ferry? Or a it boat? is a yeah. boat. I thought I was. I was wondering if that was a bit of a tricky one. <laughs> yeah. Throwing the uh, water transport. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number seven. Brief encounter. Brief encounter. It's train. It is a train. Yeah. Classic nineteen forty-five romance. Where... How did that not come up in my research on it's trains? Classic. And everybody talks like this. Yeah. They all get nice little trains. Their train platform. What are you getting so hot about? <laughs> uh, number eight. The spirit of Saint Louis. Is that? A plane or an airship? It is a plane. Yeah, okay. Plane. Which uh, James Stewart, I think, playing Charles Lindbergh, who flew yeah, from yeah. America to Europe in 1929 or something. Another film I haven't seen, but there's so no, many old films. That just... You have the scenes, you just know what they're about. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just just got to go with your gut instinct on yeah. this. Uh, number nine, source code. Uh, I haven't seen that. Plane? It's train. Oh, okay. Jake Hall. I should have just gone train for these. I'm pretty <laughs> average out of five. Jake Hall on a train and he keeps reliving the same two minutes over and over again. Oh, a bit like Deja Vu. Yeah. So oh, no, a bit like uh, The Edge of Tomorrow. Yes. I haven't seen Very Deja similar Vu, to that. But... And then the last one, which I've never heard of before, but it's called 
The Seven Ups. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible name for a film. Hovercraft. Sadly, just a car. Oh, right. But the same producer uh, who made Bullet and The French Connection. What's the most insane form of transport you've seen in a film? In Wild Wild West... With <laughs> Big Mechanical Spider. <laughs> that was the first thing that I could think of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that film was, uh, was something else, wasn't it? I mean, I think at the time I was quite young and I used to really like Will Smith. So in my head, it's still a great film. <laughs> I don't think I should watch it back. Who was the other bloke in it? Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein. I was going to say Calvin Klein. Close. <laughs> Close. Want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder? Two fellows meet accidentally. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Crisscross. You think my theory's okay, guy? You like it? Sure, sure. So to help us wash the filth that was the girl on the train out of our <laughs> system, we're going back to an absolute Alfred Hitchcock classic. You've probably guessed it. It's the noir thriller from 1951, Strangers on the Train. So the premise of this is a chance encounter on a train between Farley Granger's clean-cut tennis player and wannabe politician called Guy Haynes and the psychopathic Bruno Anthony, played by Robert Walker. Their chance encounter gains a darker edge when Anthony suggests the pair help each other out of a tight spot by each committing a murder to the benefit of the other. Anthony begins to put his plans in place only to find his erstwhile companion isn't so keen to fulfil his end of the bargain. So Johnny, I should mention this is another book adaptation. Just like The Girl on the Train. It is. Far more successful one. Uh, it's probably because it's in the hands of Alfred Hitchcock, one of the great auteurs of cinema. So how much does this film contribute to his legacy? I think we, we always talk about, you know, Rear Window, Vertigo and Psycho. Always. We don't stop talking about I that. I mean, <laughs> give it a rest, guys. So I think this is one that sort of people forget about. But Strange the Train doesn't get the love I think it deserves because it really is a cracking film. <laughs> It's a bloody good laugh, Jeremy. Bloody, bloody good. <laughs> um, well, a big part of it is the technical aspect. It's one of the most groundbreaking cinematic films ever, really. Like, the, the visual techniques and the thematic techniques in it are absolutely superb. So, there's a lot of uh, allusion to the fact that there's going to be this crash between the two of them, this, this uh, crisscrossing, as the uh, Bruno Anthony character calls it throughout the film. So he starts with the film, it's not in split screen, but they alternate between Bruno Anthony's feet walking right to left on the screen, which is traditionally the evil character, goes from right to left, because it's the unnatural move of your eyes. And the other character, the uh, Guy Haynes character walking left to right, and they're obviously on a collision course with each other throughout, and this happens repeatedly. And then also in the opening credits, they have the train going along the track, which splits off into two ways, and then eventually the tra train merges together and that's when that joins them on the train together and the uh, Guy Haynes character knocks Bruno Anthony's foot with his and then magic happens, Johnny. There you go. From I there. mean, that's the thing with this film is the more you watch, the more sort of bits you pick up. Mm. It's like the constant sort of, you know, double sort of thing going on yeah. when they're having a conversation at the start and he, he goes, you know, doubles sort yeah. of drinks. And you know, which is sort of a tennis well. thing. And, mm. So there's sort of all these allusions to, to the double sort of life and, and yes. sort of moral standards going on in the film. It's um, a film you have to watch carefully to really pick up everything on it, isn't it? So there's clever little moments that is what makes Hitchcock so good. And you need to really sort of cut a little bit of slack because these films don't, haven't necessarily aged brilliantly. They are data, they are of their time. Yeah. 
but you need to appreciate how groundbreaking they were in their time. So, you know, there's a lot of holes in the plots. There's a lot of things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, expect someone to behave in the way they do, you know, especially, I'd say the biggest problem I really have is the actual scene on the train, because it all is a little bit convenient, all a little bit Hollywood in the way, like people don't have those conversations. No, it's very much like yeah. back and forth, sort of very yeah. quick fire, sort of cleverness to it that yeah. people don't have that. Sort and of do you want do you want to kill my dad and I'll kill your wife? And that's just like no, no, let's no, probably not. It's when he sort of just goes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe not. No, I don't yeah. think so. I, like, that's a bit weird. Someone said to me this week, I'd probably be a little bit perplexed. Yeah, I think uh, Farley Granger in particular starts off pretty weak, but then gets into it. As yeah, he's a bit because um, he's up against Robert Walker, who's sort of. Yeah. pretty much overpowers him for the first sort of 20 minutes because he's just yeah. you know so much more interesting and sort of so much wittier yeah. sort of conversation and dialogue how does Hitchcock really add the sort of depth to those characters because they're not black and white are they there's lots of shades of I think of that's gray. the thing is that you sort of forget in the thing that it's you know good and bad and that Guy, Har- uh, Guy Haynes is the good character but then he's sort of you know he's getting this divorce and you know his wife's sort of murdered but he's not massively bothered about no. it he's sort of like oh, I'm, I'm sort of don't want to be embroiled with this but I'm not actually too fussed because he sort of has done me a favour but I can't be asked to do it back <laughs> for him so it's not quite as straightforward as you know good guy bad guy and um, you know they sort of they have a lot of interactions and come each other's paths and it sort of gathers pace in the way you know Robert Walker sort of keeps appearing and, yeah. and being relentless and getting Looming. slightly creepier and creepier. It's very Cape Fear. He just he keeps is. popping up. He sort of goes down the Robert Mitchum route, yeah. getting more and more sinister. You know, we've lauded Hitchcock here, but why was there a seven-minute game of tennis in the middle of this film? I, they're sort of, it's a race against the clock. He's got to finish this tennis match yeah. without being suspicious. and. But it goes on for about eight minutes. Yeah, and you've um, got Bruno Anthony going the other way. Yeah. And you're sort of, you know, the tension's building because you want him to finish this tennis match. It's quite blatantly obvious as well that he's got a tennis double too. Yeah. They don't even bother, like, hiding it. They just actually show full-on wines with this tennis double front on. And they weren't observing, observing proper tennis rules. There was, a, there was a let serve that they just carried on playing with. They didn't get That's shit. poor. It's the 50s, they didn't care. Where's your attention to detail? I can't have feeling, you know, this was before, you know, this is the pre-80s montage revolution, but I feel like this could have all been accomplished in a montage. <laughs> in, a, in a good 30-second montage. That's what you need. You need a Rocky special. It's like, i got to get to the... <laughs> i got to get to the amusement park. And then just 30 seconds of just, like, pumping music. That would have been great. And then he runs up some steps, arms alive. <laughs> yeah. Then you know, the Rocky thing. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's a classic example of the film of Hitchcock's sort of eye for suspense. Yeah, so that, there's yeah. lots of moments where it's you know building to a moment and it is you know. Well, how does how does he do that? You know, in contrast to the girl on the train, how does Hitchcock build that tension? Well, I think there's, you know, there's lots of things. It sort of comes back round a lot of it. You know, you see the sort of the double thing with when uh, Bruno Anthony sees the girl who looks just like you know the girl that he strangled, and he yeah. sort of keeps seeing uh, and sort of you get the the fairground music plays again. And I think he's good at balancing out the sort of, you know, the dialogue and the slightly funnier moments with the sort of the darker undercurrent that you know is coming and it, mm. and it builds on that. So let's give this one a rating out of 10. I feel a bit ashamed to even be doing this because we don't really have the 
the the authority to be commenting on a film of this calibre, but Johnny? I think I'm gonna go with a nine. Yeah. It's you know it's just good filmmaking really. You know, yeah. there's some slight logic gaps and things, but Hitchcock didn't worry about that. No. It's the, he's kind you of get bogged polar. down in detail. It's the polar opposite to girl on the girl on the train really, isn't it? You know? It's just brilliantly made. It's a brilliantly made film. I think the story, as I said, is ten out of ten. The you know the cinematic sort of integrity of it is ten out of ten as well. It is a bit dated and it is very much of its time, but it's still very entertaining, which is you know obviously a massive factor. You you grip to it the whole film. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the nine as well. I'm gonna go with the nine. I think if uh, it wasn't so hugely acclaimed as such a legendary film, I probably would have given it an eight. But you know, I'm a I'm a sheep. There's a few like I think when he when he drops his lighter, that is <laughs> that is it. That is classic sort of you know overacting Hollywood of the 50s well, the very very bizarre horse stuff that goes on the fair the, you know the climax on the merry-go-round that was that'll give you a nightmare I mean that was quite action packed for the 50s I was <laughs> quite impressed with that and it all hinged on like a 90 year old Jamie Vardy lookalike taking weeks to crawl underneath the thing and turn it off I think I read somewhere that they he actually had to crawl under a overcharged carousel to get there and they were like Please don't die. <laughs> I'm a carny. It's fine. I you know, know what I'm doing. Yeah, Hitchcock always cameos in his films. That could have easily been a cameo from his dad, because that guy were old. It would have been good if the cameo had been him having in his large size. He wouldn't have fit trying to get under the carousel. Just crawls under and it just breaks. <laughs> That's it. Just stops it by sheer. He just, just stopped it by just wedging <laughs> yeah. Hitchcock underneath. You're just as much in it as I am. We planned it on the train. Crisscross. How did you get him to do it? He's a maniac. I met him on the train going to Medcalf, and now a lunatic wants me to kill his father. Bruno, I've decided to do what you want. I don't like to be double-crossed. I have a murder on my conscience, but it's not my murder, Mr. Haynes. It's yours. This is the point in the show we normally come to three faster and furious, but we're going to do something a little bit different this week because Johnny's been busy. So what have you been up to, Johnny? <laughs> Very busy. Yeah, you tell us what you've been doing I've, and what you're going to do now. I've been down to the London Film Festival mm-hmm. this week, so the I saw there. six films in three days, which is a lot of napping. Yeah. So um, quite the eclectic mix. So instead of the usual three trailers, I'm going to try and get through six films in a minute. Oh, God. So... What's it, what could we call this? Six... I don't know. Should have thought about that before we came on the podcast. <laughs> Half a dozen dash. <laughs> Easy done. <laughs> I'm gonna put it on the clock now. So I'm gonna count you down. Three, two, one, go. Brimstone. Guy Pierce plays a psychotic reverend stalking a mute Dakota Fanning in a superbly epic western that spans four compelling chapters. Number two, the autopsy of Jane Doe. Middling horror from the director of Trollhunter about a father and son, son conducting an autopsy on a creepy girl. Gore's laughs and a few jump scares. Number three, Nocturnal Animals. Fashion man Tom Ford directs this meta-production that's a story within a story within a story with Jake Gyllenhaal and Amy Adams. Probably one of the best films of the year. Number four, The Ghoul. Gog from Peep Show, Jaws, but not Jaws, directs and writes this low-budget psychological thriller about London Illusia's marbles. Surprisingly good. Did he have crunching nut cornflakes? <laughs> it's Honda. <laughs> Number five, Trespass of Gamesters. Michael Fassbender and Brendan Gleeson are totally wasted in this light-hearted drama about gypsies. Starts off well before lapsing into soppy bollocks. Number six, 
Dog Eat Dog. Taxi driver writer Paul Schrader directs this vulgar, offensive and lurid crime drama. Despite its offensive work, Nicolas Cage and William Defoe steal a child, which is pretty enjoyable. Done. There you go. Not bad. Got through them. And that was bang on time. After my GOG intervention. We didn't actually mention The Stranger Than The Train. Another great thing about it and why it deserves the nine is because it influenced an episode of Peep Show. Which one's that? The one when um, Mark gets put on like a mistress. It's not piss. Uh, <laughs> and he yes. pisses in the thing. And Jeremy, and they get shot. They get shot with an air gun and Jeremy kicks a dog to death. It sounds like a great episode. And then, then Jeremy pepper sprays Mark at the end. It's yeah, that episode. I do it's one that. of the best episodes, actually. I don't know how I can't remember that. Influence that. But so yes. It's, it's good to hear a mention from Gog. Gog, he was, up, he, he was the director, was there, and I thought, bloody hell, I recognise that bloke from somewhere. Just halfway through the film, I was like, Gog, it's Gog. <laughs> was there plenty of core on Glay? <laughs> <laughs> they want much more core on Glay. So, you know, we went through the six. We can't really talk about all six. So I'll, I'll pick out the highlights. Uh, the first one's Brimstone, which um, is this Western with Dakota Fanning. She's basically being stalked by Guy Pearce, who plays this lunatic, reverend, you know, religious, zealous man. Uh, sort of like, very much like Robert Mitchell in Night of the Hunter, sort of. But without love and hate tattooed on his hands. Guy Pearce is good at that. He's really good That's at it. That's a good like, kind of Really, role really good. And it's sort of the, the structure is it sort of starts and then it goes back. And you sort of work out why Guy Pearce is stalking Dakota Fanning mm-hmm. or how she became a mute. So That's it, one to look out for then. Really good. thought it was really well put together and something different from a Western. So it was more from the women sort of perspective of enjoying the West or not enjoying the West at all, really. Yeah. So when men were men and women were scared. That was pretty much... That should be the tagline for the <laughs> yeah. film, actually. Um, the other one was Nocturnal Animals, which I think is out in about three weeks. Okay. Um... Which has Jake Gyllenhaal, Amy Adams, and it's like, it's Night basically Roller. a thriller. They're all very good in it, and it's basically about, Amy Adams is sort of this art dealer, sort of set, does exhibitions. She lives this sort of boring life, but she's got everything she wants, but she lives in LA and she's not happy. And she one day she gets a copy of her ex-husband's novel he's finally written. So it's sort of her reading it. <laughs> Faster than the speed of love. <laughs> it's not that, though. But, um... So basically the, the novel is being played out in a film and there's Amy Adams in the film and then the sort of flashbacks to how she met her first husband. So it's, these sort of three narratives sort of cut together, but it's very stylish, very well done. And it will probably be one of the big films, I think, when it comes out in a couple of weeks. Yes. And then the final one was Dog Eat Dog, which Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe in this completely ludicrous film. And it's just bright neon lights, strip clubs. At one point, they're spraying ketchup over each other. At one point, they nick a baby. It's just, it's like Pulp Fiction, but on steroids and LSD. And both, at times, difficult men to look at. Very. Nicholas Cage does that thing where you can't tell if he's really good in it or terrible. So oh, he's always great. So I think it's that... And always terrible. And at one point, he does a whole scene pretending to be Humphrey Bogart, so... (laughs) You know, it's worth seeing just just to experience that. But is it though? You're the lowest on the totem pole here, Alva. The lowest. Do you realize that? Every other secretary who's been here has been here longer than you, Alva. Every one. And even if there was someone here who was here just one day longer than you, I still wouldn't ask that person to partake in such a miserable job as long as you were around. So top five time and it's my turn. 
Uh, and we are going to be doing, well, we, sorry, I am going to be doing my top five personal favourite train scenes in film, right? So there's so many good ones, and the best ones are clearly Strangers on the Train, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But we've talked about those films quite a lot. So I'm just going to talk about sort of my favourite five ones, which are just quality, underrated scenes, I think. I was thinking about saying there movie. are a lot of train scenes. Yeah. Trains are very popular in films. So it's actually quite difficult to do, but you know that's why I just went for my personal favourites, because I'd be leaving out too many good ones to just go with like the best ones. So, starting at number five, I've gone with the opening scene from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay. where they're escaped convicts and they're running they're all chained together in three they jump up onto the train and George Clooney gets on first he makes it on happily John Turturro is up there second and uh, the third guy can't actually get up onto the train falls over in the background George Clooney's talking to some hobo then John Turturro slides off and then George Clooney slides off it's just a hilarious opening to the film and as you mentioned before, they then get one of those like things that you pump up and down to move. Of course. So it's great. And that so you've got you know, it's kind of double your train buck. You get an actual train and then you get one of them as a well. A little comedy train. Yeah, a little comedy train. <laughs> uh, number four, I'm gone with the uh, end scene, not very end scene, but the later part of Back to the Future Part Three. Quite a maligned film, but mainly just in comparison to the previous two, which are far better films. It is quite an average film throughout Back to Future Part 3, but I do think that the end scene of the train is great. They use the train in a different way. It's almost like a chase scene using the train, where they're trying to push the car up to 88 miles an hour by firing it with dynamite, and then the tension comes. There's a hoverboard in it. Marty's in it. It's fantastic, although Clara does ruin it. I mean, the, that is a selection of ridiculous transport. I mean, the DeLorean is a ridiculous piece of transport. Yeah. It's a time-travelling car. Uh, number three, The Fugitive. Ah, uh, yeah. One of the early scenes of The Fugitive when he's trying to get out. There's actually a lot more to that scene than you think because he's trying to get out. The policeman does him over and refuses to help him get out of the car. So, you know, the figure of authority, supposed to be the moral authority, is basically allowing him to die when he could easily save him. Uh, and it's actually the murderous criminal that helps him out because he was returning the favour for him saving his life earlier in the bit. So there's that. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of tension whether he's going to get out of the train on time. And obviously, you know, he does because else the next two hours of the film, which is, a, yeah, I think it's quite a long film. Just cleaning him off the track. <laughs> yeah, this is backbreaking. <laughs> and then we've got a pressure washer because this is an absolute nightmare. Uh, okay, and then number two Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. River Phoenix, cruising through a train. At one point, he whips a lion in the face with a whip. And also, we get to see how he gets his famous hat as well. So that wraps up quite nicely. Uh, so that's my second. And finally, my number one, I've gone with From Russia With Love. And the brutal fight on the train between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw, who actually, that brings the show full circle, doesn't it? Because he played Captain Quint. He did. In Jaws. There we go. That's good. Yeah, that was Robert Shaw. Yeah, so brutal fight between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw, which starts with him being the only. You know, he's in. He's in the position of power. He's got Bond in the car. He's got the gun to him, and he doesn't hammer home his advantage, does he? He opens up that briefcase full of gas, gases himself, and then they end up having a vicious fight until Sean Connery inevitably wins because he's James Bond. So, those are my personal faves. I mean, Bond ones. does a lot of things. He spends a lot of time on trains. When you think of. Guy Fall mm-hmm. has a big punch up on a train. Yeah. And Goldeneye. Fights Jaws on a train at one point, doesn't he? He does fight Jaws on a train, I think. So that must be Spy Who Loved Me. 
And then Goldeneye, Goldeneye, the the bit with the the big Soviet train. That's good, that one. And he's got to get out of it at the end. And then what was the recent one? Which wasn't Uh, Spectre. Spectre. Spectre has a fight on a train. Does he? uh, On the top of the train. No, I think he's in it. Is he he fighting Batista, the wrestler? I feel like this is a dream. Is he fighting the big show? (laughs) Do you get Tombstone Power Driver in there? He gets double teamed by The Undertaker and Paul Bearer. They buried alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, a Bond loves a train. No. So, what would you would you have in your sort of? I've always had a soft spot for Brief Encounter because mm. it's it's just such a nice little film. Yes. Everyone's so twee, and it's like they're having the most innocent affair ever. Yeah. They go to the cinema and have like tea in a car, in a little yeah. cafe, and she's like distraught about <laughs> cheating on her husband. You've what literally a, gone for a boat ride. On what the a lake. promiscuous hussy yeah. I am. <laughs> Uh, so you know the, the train station sort of acts as the key location in it so yeah. that'll probably be up there I think nice but I mean trains appear all the time you sort of forget how ubiquitous they are they're everywhere I don't wonder why they're such a key device maybe because like you know there's that element of they're so big and powerful and they're like unstoppable also has a lot of people in a confined space a lot of people who don't know each other that kind of adds to a bit of tension and they, always, they come up a lot in the west you know progress plowing yeah. through the, the poor farmers and the big corporation and all that stuff what now Mr. Plan Man now well what do we have we have intelligence we have a sense of purpose we have the element of surprise so what does Loveless have he has an 80 foot tarantula Yes, well, I was coming to that. Sadly, that's all for another week, folks. But check out Johnny's blog, thelatestpictureshow.com, to fill the void until we're back. You're going to be putting some stuff up from the film festival, Johnny? Or? I think I will. I'm going to be writing reviews non-stop this week. Of all six of them? You watch I them say that now. <laughs> I say that now. Wait till you get to, like, Tuesday afternoon and you're, like, writing up about the greasy strangler. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, cool. No, sounds good. I'll keep an eye out. And you should at home as well, listeners. And remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at The Movie Men Show. And for the easiest way to listen, subscribe on iTunes or you can still listen on SoundCloud as well. That's great because then we can actually see who's listening and who's not. We can send you birthday cards. And Turns things. out most of you aren't. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, thanks for checking us out. We've been The Movie Men and we're off to go throw Mama off the train. Ciao.